philanthropy is changing. We are trying to build better, candid, honest, and more horizontal relationship with fundraisers, and that we want them to see us that way and that we really want to collaborate. We're part of the same fight. We want to advance the same causes and we're together on this. Hey everyone, I'm Emily Collins-Ellis and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the Managing Director here at IG and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers and we want to help them better understand each other. And so we bring you season three of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic and slightly irreverent view into Major Gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show. I hope this finds you all well and enjoying your week. For today's episode, we had the pleasure of speaking with Jimena and Dion Ibanez, a program officer at the Ford Foundation. Today's episode is a really special one, not only because we had an absolutely fantastic conversation about fundraising with Jimena, but we're also sharing the recent release of IG's latest sector resource, the Field Guide to Relationship-Based Fundraising. We'll tell you more about that in a sec, but first let me introduce our guest more properly. So the Ford Foundation is, of course, the well-known U.S.-based private foundation with the mission of advancing human welfare and supporting diversity, equality, and inclusion globally. It stewards a $13.7 billion endowment, one of the wealthiest private endowments in the world, and it makes $500 million approximately in grants every year around the world. So for eight decades, the foundation has been providing bold, progressive, creative support for social justice and making grants through its New York headquarters and 10 international field offices. For today's show, as I mentioned, we were absolutely thrilled to speak with Jimena and Dion Ibanez. She's the program officer specifically for Mexico and Central America at the foundation. Jimena is also a professor of women's rights at the Universidad Iberoamericana and has 20 years experience working on issues related to human rights and gender equality and social justice around the world. My goodness, her resume is unbelievably impressive and she's going to tell you more about that when we start the interview. Now I'm going to hand over to my colleague and, and fabulous co-host Yasmin Awad, who actually led on the creation of IG's field guide, and she's your point person for all things guide related. So she'll tell you a little bit more about it and how you can access it. Thanks, Rachel. So yeah, in 2020, IG partnered with the, the Ford Foundation to develop a field guide to relationship-based fundraising, which is a completely free and interactive resource aimed at organizations of every size who want to create a realistic and bespoke fundraising strategy that actually leverages their existing assets, but helps them grow and diversify their income. We structured the guide around the donor journey framework and collaborated with more than 25 organizations across Asia, Africa, Latin America, Europe, and North America to actually design it. We wanted it to be a resource that is relevant and realistic and showcases tangible examples of best practice that any nonprofit can be inspired by, alongside activities and toolkits that will bring the materials to life. So the guide is available for free download on our website, fundraisingfieldguide.org. And you can find the link in the episode blurb to download it and, and explore it a bit more. Thanks, Yasmin. So before we dive in, finally, I of course want to send a thank you and shout out to our official season three sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership truly makes this all possible. And we want to send a thank you to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. You can check out their website, alliancemagazine.org, for lots of really interesting and progressive philanthropic content. And you can get a 25% discount on an Alliance subscription by using the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, at checkout. All right, that's it from us for now. We'll, we'll get on to the interview. It was really such a fantastic conversation and, uh, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Jimena, to What Donors Want. It is such an honor to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. 
So before we dive into your work at the Ford Foundation and and all about your fundraising expertise, we always start our shows off with a get to know you speed round. And these questions have absolutely nothing to do with your job, with social impacts. Well, maybe actually one of them kind of does, but in a, in a fun way. Yasmin and I will will fire them at you and you can just say the first thing that comes to your mind and Perfect. and then we'll get into the into the meat of it. All right. So question number one, what has been the best thing that you've watched during lockdown? Oh, I think my daughter in school, like watching her, how she behaves in school, how she interacts with our kids. Yeah, I think that that's been awesome and a very nice part of it. Amazing. Great. Next question is, what kind of music are you listening to these days? Uh, I've been listening a lot to flamenco music. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it all the time. But yeah, recently I've been just like listening a lot to it. I love that. What is your favorite thing about living in Mexico? Mm, I think the food is great. And also Mexico City has many museums and a very vibrant cultural and music scene. Obviously, when we don't have coronavirus, but (laughs) in general, it's very good. (laughs) Next question from me. When you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be an actress, but a theater actress. Like, that's Mm. what I wanted to be. Yeah, I still I still dream that someday I'll become a very old actress. But (laughs) (laughs) that is the same for me. I went to theater school. That was my my dream yeah, for a long time but <laughs> yeah social justice like just cut up but <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> exactly so of course you are a program officer and, and you engage with fundraisers a lot so would you rather have a hundred coffees or virtual meetings rather with fundraisers or would you rather read a hundred funding applications oh no meetings with fundraisers for sure yeah <laughs> That's a great answer. And finally, last question. Do you prefer coffee or tea? Oh, coffee, 100 times. I drink both, but I prefer coffee. Like I cannot live without coffee. The mornings. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. I've got mine right here. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Awesome. All right. That is the end of the speed round. Thank you. So now, of course, what we really want to focus on is your work at the Ford Foundation and and your work across philanthropy. You have such an impressive resume and background. So um, to start us off, you know, as listeners know, you are the program officer for Mexico and Central America at the Ford Foundation. And you're a women's rights professor at the Universidad Ibero-Americana. Americana? Yeah. I said that right? (laughs) So... I mean, what incredible positions. So before we dive into all of this, could you just zoom out for a a moment and tell listeners about your background and how you got into the world of philanthropy and women's rights and and social justice in the first place? Yeah, for sure. So I started uh, working when I was still studying in school. I started working as a volunteer in a human rights organization. And I really, I really liked the work there. And I decided to just like focus my career. I was studying international relations and I thought I was going to work first at the UN and being a diplomat. So I had all these dreams. And then I really got caught up with the work at in, in the human rights field. I worked for almost six years at this organization. And then I ended up working at the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights in Mexico. Uh, and from there, I decided to go to study a master's degree in law, in international human rights law in England. And after that, like I decided that I really, when I was working at this human rights organization in Mexico, we started working with the cases of the women that were disappeared and killed in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua, which is a very famous case all around the world. And it was very difficult for the organization to take up on the cases because they had all this stigma about violence against women not being a human rights issue. So there, that, that's where I became a feminist and I really decided that I wanted to work with feminist organizations. So after my master's degree, I went on to work in Guatemala, also with the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, but my end up goal was really to work with a, with a feminist organization. So I ended up getting a job at a feminist organization based in the U.S. called the Center for Reproductive Rights and started their their global advocacy work. And I worked there for almost six years. And at the same time, we founded a new NGO in Mexico focused on access to justice issues. And I 
really thought at that time that I wanted to go back to Mexico because I was out of the country for eight years. So I went back and I uh, started working at another feminist organization focused on reproductive rights. And then I became the director of another feminist organization. So I basically spent most of my life with NGOs, with both human rights and also feminist organizations with a little bit of time at the UN. And after being the director of this organization for six years, I really thought like, oh, what I'm going to do next? And really, I, I thought that it was philanthropy was a very interesting field. And also having in philanthropy people that has worked a long time in civil society was important. And I was all my life, I was I was a grantee of the Ford Foundation in the different organizations that I worked. So when this position opened, I just thought that it was it was right, just fit for me. It was working in Mexico and Central America. I had experience on the topics. It's where my heart was and where my passion was. So I, I thought I would give philanthropy a try. That's incredible, especially to go from being being a grantee to now being a, a program officer there. And wow, working with all those feminist organizations. I mean, that's that's definitely more more important than theater. Although some people <laughs> might disagree, but that's that's very that's really cool. Agree. I have to say, Rachel, but yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true, and there can be many. You know, there's a whole whole canon of feminist and and kind of really interesting progressive theater. But wow, that's that's really awesome. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Next question is about the Ford Foundation. So obviously, most listeners are probably familiar with the Ford Foundation, but for anyone who might not be, can you give a quick summary of what the foundation does, and specifically in Mexico and Central America? Yes, of course. So the Ford Foundation is a U.S.-based private foundation that has a global focus. So we work in the U.S., but we also work in 11 regions of the world. World, We have 11 offices. We are not part of any, uh, in any kind of, of, the, of the Ford company because that's a question that we always get asked. It was founded by, by one of the people from the Ford family, but we haven't had a relationship with the company at any point in our life. And the Ford Foundation wants to advance social justice and human rights all around the world. We have been focusing now on the issue of inequalities and how can we really, with our work, tackle the enormous socioeconomic, gender, racial inequalities that we see around the world. And from two years ago, we have three global strategies. And all our work tries to fit into these three global strategies. The, the first one is on natural resources and climate change. And that's mostly focused on how can we really help communities and people around the world try to govern their own territories, protect their land, and really mitigate the, the climate change and adapt to it. The second strategy is civic engagement and governments, and that's trying to really tackle these very negative trends of closing of civic space that we really see. We see civic space as a space where people demonstrate, hold governments accountable, participate, and we see that that's been closing in, in many parts of the world. So, so with this strategy, what we want is really to try to resist those closing and really expand it and really make ensure that there is space for organizations and citizens to participate, to interact, to really organize, to make the world better. And the third strategy is on uh, gender and racial and ethnic justice. And that strategy is being focused on the issue of violence against women and girls, trying to really raise the voice of women and girls in the programs and the policies to combat gender-based violence, particularly women and girls from the global south. So in the Mexico and Central America, we work in Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Those are our countries of focus. And we have two main strategies. One is on, on the natural resources and climate change. We work mostly with communities and indigenous communities and rural communities to try to protect their land and, and, and territories from extractive industries and really ensure that they can protect their territories because we, we have found that they are the best ones to really protect forests and protect the environment. And the second one on civic engagement and governments is focused on the issue of impunity of grave human rights violations 
and corruption, which is a big issue in Mexico for Mexico and Central America, and on gender just and ethnic justice that that's that's mainstream into the into our to of our strategy. So uh, we do grant making to big organizations, but we also support grassroots organizations. We support social movements. We have a broad range of grant making to support organizations. We do a lot of convening. We do a lot of of trying to articulate different movements to work together to advance these causes. Wow. Thank you. That is that is really useful to know. And I mean, it's no secret that the Ford Foundation is just an absolute leader when it comes to progressive social justice, feminist values and philanthropy. And it's so wonderful to be in partnership with your organization and and with your team. So likewise, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So now thinking about your role as a program officer. So of course, well, you've also been on the other side of the table. As you said, you've been a a grantee of, of Ford and now you're the program officer on the other side of the table. And a lot of our listeners of the podcast are fundraisers themselves. So working in nonprofits or within activist movements or social enterprises or some sort of fundraising organization around the world. And a lot of them, you know, when thinking about the relationships that they build with with program officers, a lot of them genuinely don't actually know what goes into that job. They they don't have a good sense of, of what the kind of remit is and what the day-to-day is. And that can sometimes lead to uh, relationships that aren't necessarily as fruitful or as kind of deep and genuine as they could be. So could you demystify this a bit for us? Could you kind of break down you know, what, what are your primary responsibilities as a program officer and what does a day in the life look like? Yeah, and I, I want to say that I always joke with my colleagues that before coming to four, I thought that program officers spent a lot of time in cocktails and like reading <laughs> things and like going to events, you know, like yeah. a very glamorous life. And then you realize when you work here that it's a very hard work and, and it's really not as glamorous as, as people will think. I mean, in terms of the responsibilities, I think in, uh, at least in Ford, but I think it applies to many foundations, the program officers are really the ones holding up the strategy of the foundation for the region where they work. And they are the ones, obviously, thinking about the strategy, developing the strategy that always uh, goes to uh, different levels of approval. But you are the real, really the one like drafting the strategies for the region and then rolling it out, which means obviously finding uh, the grantees, proposing the grantees, interacting with the grantees. Really, you are the one that that has the direct contact with the field and, and that you have the best really the best temperature. You can take the temperature of what's going on in in the ecosystem of civil society organizations, what's the context. We also spend a lot of time trying to understand the context of the different countries where we work. Like in most cases, program officers, at least global program officers at the Ford Foundation, they don't only work in one country. They probably work in two or three or four like us. So you need to really keep aware of what's going on in the different countries. So that's a lot of work. And then also part of rolling out the strategy is also revising it, seeing if it's really having the impact that you say it will have, assessing it, revising it, etc. In terms of the day-to-day, So we do a lot of things. I think the most fun part is to spend time with grantees, like really interacting with them, getting to know their work, getting to know also what the failures they are having, the successes, etc. So we spend a lot of time on that. We spend a lot of time also interacting with other foundations that are funding on the same region, on the same issues. We also represent the foundation at different events. And obviously, interacting with grantees often involves a lot of traveling to the countries when that's possible. And then that's the fun part, I would say, and the, the more external part. And then there is the internal part where we spend a lot of time doing the grants. So we have to write for every grant. We have to write a recommendation for that grant. We need to review the reports that the that the organizations send to us and also write recommendations about those that, those reports. We need, as, as I said, we need to draft the strategy. We have indicators for, for each one of our outcomes for our strategy. So we need to f- be following up that. And then, as I said, we need to spend a lot of time like reading newspapers from the different countries so that we can really understand the context in each of the countries. So it's a lot of work, but it's part of it's very fun. The other part can be, can also be seen as bureaucratic or boring, but I, I also think that you learn a lot also reading the reports, 
and reading the, the grant proposals that organizations and fundraisers sent to us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It sounds incredible. And one quick follow-up for you on that in terms of actual decision-making. So I know you said that you're kind of helping to write reports. Would you say that at Ford, I know it varies foundation to foundation to some extent, but would you say that program officers are the people who are making the final decisions on which grants do or, or don't get funded? Or is there a bigger process? There is a bigger process and it varies even inside the foundation from office to office. In our office for Mexico and Central America, what we have decided is, so I'm the lead from the issue of civic engagement and governments and my other two colleagues that are program officers lead on the issue of natural resources. But we discuss all the grants together as a team and you need to argue. So you, you have you, you have a certain space to lead and to decide, but you need to argue why you're going to fund certain project or certain organization and really how it fits into the strategy, the impact you're going to have. And then after that, that, that grant goes to a bigger process. You need to pass to, to the process of compliance and the legal requirements, but it also goes to different levels. At fourth, depending on the amount of the grant, it either goes only to your regional director, but it can also go to the vice president or to the president, depending on the amount. So it always has a, uh, a bigger layer. And I think before, probably 20 years ago, it was mostly the decision of the program officer. But I think at four, it has changed in the sense that there is there is more a sense of a team mm-hmm. and, and a better sense of how do you really argue in favor of, of certain projects according to your strategy that you have written up. So, so it's yeah. not that easy it's not, and it's not only your decision. That makes total sense. And I think this is reminding me, we, I guess it was about two years ago now, we spoke with Edgar Villanueva, who wrote Decolonizing Wealth. We had him on the show and he was, well, he's incredible for many, many reasons. But I remember one of the pieces of advice he gave on to fundraisers. He said, if if the money isn't yours, then you never cease to be a fundraiser, even if you work within a philanthropic institution, because all you're doing is becoming the internal advocate for these grantees and helping them get through the approval process and pitching for them to the other stakeholders within your team or, you you know, within whatever hierarchy or function exists. So I think that is a really key learning. And and to hear you say that as well is just super valuable for listeners because you're their advocate and they, you know, you kind of need to work in partnership with them to get them over the line. Totally. And I would say that there is also a limited amount of, of, of resources, you know, like mm-hmm. it's like there are always many more projects interesting project that the ones you can fund and it's always hard you know because there is a lot there is a lot of saying no and that's one of the biggest things that I've learned here there are a lot of times you have to say no and it's not because the project is not interesting it's just because you cannot fund as much as you could want yeah yeah those are very good points and we also can relate to that sometimes given the work that we do and and how we support organizations as well, especially when it comes to fundraising. It's, it's a very challenging area. So next question is about fundraising challenges, <laughs> of course. And so at the start of this episode, we spoke about the ongoing collaboration between IG and the Ford Foundation, particularly around the launch of, um, of the Field Guide to Relationship-Based Fundraising in 2020. So as listeners already heard, it's a free-to-download and interactive resource for fundraisers who want to create a realistic and well-grounded fundraising strategy for their organizations. So we created the guide in close collaboration with more than 25 nonprofits around the world so that we could ensure that it addressed all their challenges and provided practical support. So as someone who works closely with many nonprofits, as you mentioned earlier, you have a finger on the pulse of the sector and you were a grantee yourself before. What value do you think that a guide like this has? Can I just say first that I I wish that this guide existed when I was a a fundraiser. I was like, oh my God, like this gives you so much insight and in-depth information that you often don't have. So... So yeah, I think it's it's an amazing effort and I'm sorry to be also publicizing it because we participate in it, but I really think it's very useful. First, I think it's fun. It's not boring. It's not heavy, which is a difference from other kind of guides, which often you, you hear the, the word guide or manual and you often think about something very heavy, very boring. I don't think that that's the case for this guide. And Thank I think the, the most the most important thing is that it really gives you very useful practical information, tips, how can you, and it really like gives you 
step-by-step -step information on each step of the process of engaging with a funder of what you need to do, the questions that you need to ask yourself. I think the resources that it gives you are very good. The case studies are really interesting because you can really relate, not, not in the abstract terms of the theoretical ways of engaging, but in real and practical terms, how, how do you do it? And, and it really, you know, because you engage with donors in, in drafting this guide, you really see that. Like now that I'm a funder, I really see myself reflected there in, in the sense of the, of the struggles that I have also in interacting with, with fundraisers and also the struggles that fundraisers have, the things that they don't understand. So I think it's really, it's really good. At the beginning, it has a test where you can see where your organization is. And I think that that's very useful to understand if you're really at a point of, of preparedness to and readiness to engage with a donor or not, what do you need to do in order to engage better with a donor? And that's something that you don't have anywhere, that no one no one really teaches you. Like you start working at an organization and there is not really very much on that. And so I think that this guide will really be a very useful resource for fundraisers in understanding better and in very practical terms how to engage and what to do in the different stages. And you can use the stage that you want. So it's a thing that you can keep coming back when whenever you need it. So I really, really like it. Thank you, Jimena. And that's a very good point. In fact, when we wanted to create a resource that would be different from anything else that is already available online, especially a lot of the times you have these courses that you have to take in their entirety and you don't get to choose which areas of your fundraising game you kind of want to improve. And a lot of organizations, especially given that they have very different sizes and needs, uh, don't necessarily have the time and resources to take entire courses, especially if some of those areas are not relevant for them. And so we are glad that you actually like the, the idea of having this self-assessment test in the beginning. And we really hope that it will be very useful for listeners as well. Yeah, and I hope you really translate it into Spanish. Like I'm talking on my own, like in best interest, but I think that for the organizations in, in Mexico and Central America, it will be really good to have this resource translated into Spanish. So I, will, I hope you can do that. <laughs> I was literally about to say that we have very good news oh, good. because we are currently working on a Spanish translation right. which will be available very, very soon. So we'll make sure to share that as soon as, as it's ready. Perfect. All right, I have a, a little, another little quick question for you. So we've been working quite closely with the Ford's BUILD program. So for listeners who don't know, BUILD stands for Building Institutions and Networks program, which is a five-year, one billion investment in the long-term capacity and sustainability for up to 300 social justice organizations around the world. So from your perspective, are there any key trends and insights from this program that other nonprofits should be aware of? Yeah, so I think the BUILD program, really the starting point is the hypothesis that if you give more flexible long-term support to organization plus specific resources and support to their internal institutional strengthening, that organization will become more impactful, that they will really be enhanced and that that will help the, the social justice causes that they are pursuing. We're still evaluating the program, so we still need to see if that hypothesis is really confirmed because there are a lot of external factors, right? Like you can say that the organization has more impact, but then the context in the country just like gets worsened, so it's difficult to have more impact. But I do truly think being, I, I was a build grantee before coming to Ford, and that's what actually the build program was one of the reasons that I really wanted to work here, because I think it's really trying to shift the way we see philanthropy in the sense like, what we say to to the to the fundraisers that the organizations we fund is like we really trust you we want to invest you in the long term we want to be a partnering with you like it's trying you know like there there's always going to be a power relationship between the fundraisers and the donors but what we really want to do with the build program is is try to to lower those those power like really make create more horizontal relationships, create more candid and known as relationship with organizations, like really understanding that better, trying to make sure that they have enough resources to spend in the organization, because that's the other thing, right? Like sometimes donors say to organizations, you need to strengthen yourself, but if there are no resources devoted to that, then there is no way to do it. And I think with this program, we really, as you do with the guide, we really accompany the organization in identifying the most relevant 
institutional priorities that they have and we give support for them to implement those. And we have also created cohorts of organizations where there is a lot of horizontal learning. So what we do for Mexico and Central America is, for example, if an organization has got, undergone a very successful change in their, in their governance body, we ask them to tell the rest of the organizations about it and they ask questions and we realize how important the horizontal learning among organizations has been. We also realize that really with more flexible funding, organizations become more resilient. They can really take advantage of the political opportunities that just come up from nowhere that if they invest in the in their people, the people stay longer, the organization becomes more, more stronger, the leadership transitions are better. So there is a lot of that we have learned. And I think for other donors, my best advice is like, we really need to invest in long-term general flexible funding for organization. I think that's the way to go. I think we need to it's like losing control, you know, in a way, like we need to like let it go and have less control of what organizations are doing, trust them better and really understand that that's going to make the ecosystem stronger and that we can make a difference in the social justice causes that we are supporting if we do that. And it's great to hear that's on top of your agenda, especially as a as a funder. I mean, when we during our design phase for the the field guide itself, we spoke to a lot of collaborations, as we mentioned earlier, and we kind of investigated on their needs and and challenges. And a lot of the themes that you just highlighted is exactly what these fundraisers brought up during our conversations as well. So, for example the need for flexible and unrestricted funding to, to be able to fund the areas of their, their work that need the most support, which includes the, the capacity building internally and kind of building the skills that fundraisers and the teams need. And also another one that you talked about, which I think is extremely important, is the, the ability to share uh, learnings with, with peers. So with uh, similar organizations who are going through very similar challenges. And, you know, it just adds so much value when you're able to to understand what's happening elsewhere and maybe figuring out solutions as fast as possible. I think that's that's such a valuable point and we're very pleased to hear that you're doing this kind of work. Yeah, and I think it's realizing that social causes take a long time and that you really need to invest in the movements and the and in the organizing and that probably you're not going to get like a very rapid outcome but that in the long term you will see the difference when you do that. And I think that's that's probably the best advice we can give. Completely. Completely. And it's so it's so clear. I mean, Ford for a very long time has been at the the kind of forefront of, of progressive power shifting approaches. And of course, Darren Walker is an incredible thought leader and influencer in, in that kind of model for nonprofits and for profits, which is really cool. But it's also so powerful and wonderful to see that reflected in all elements of the foundation strategy and how it's it's really shared by all of the staff. So uh, we're definitely big supporters of that. And understand how important it is for a foundation like Ford that is, of course, extremely well-respected and extremely recognizable to set the pace for all for the other philanthropies, for the other donors out there. So thank you for that. That's, that's such a great overview. Now, I want to dive into a little bit of fundraising advice. So of course, you know, you interact with fundraisers or with, with, with grantees irregularly in your role. And, you know, the, you'd rather have those 100 coffees than read those 100 funding applications, which makes loads of sense and speaks to the relationship-based kind of core of, of good fundraising. So I'm wondering, you know, it's a big question, but a lot of our listeners are at various stages of their fundraising journey. Some of them are at the beginning, some don't even know where to begin, and some are just looking to kind of upskill themselves. But do you have any key advice if you could sit down with a fundraiser who is maybe more towards the beginning of their journey? What key advice would you tell them in order to help them build fantastic donor relationships? Wow, there are a lot of things. I would I would start by saying like do your research before you go to a funder. Like really understand what are the priorities of of that funder? What are the values of that funder? Like what what do we really are about? And I think what is important is also when you engage with them, really share your vision, 
your theory of change? Because sometimes you come up with new organizations that just like sit with you and like talk for like 40 minutes about their activities without really sharing. First, like that's talking too much. Like you really need to try to engage in a conversation. So, so if you make a presentation of 40 minutes about all the great things that you have done without really uh, trying to engage in a conversation, I think that's a mistake. It's a mistake also not to really ask questions. Like you need to also ask the donor some questions like, what are you pursuing? What are your priorities? And the other thing I, I would say is often, and that happens a lot, I think, for fundraisers, you, you are trying to impress so much the funder that you are not being real. And I think what we want more and more in philanthropy is people being real, people being real about the obstacles they are facing, about the questions that they still have. Like when, when to, at least for me, like when a, when a fundraiser comes with all the answers and with all the perfect things they're doing, like for me, that's not being real because that's not the way social work is messy. You make some progress and then you have some setbacks. And I think what we want is people that are really candid and honest about that. What we want more and more is to that fundraisers see us as part of the ecosystem. You, we are fighting the same fights. We're also people that cares about the issues. So if you show us your passion, if you see us as people that you can be partnering with to advance the causes, I think that that's, that's very important. And the other two things I would say, I could say a lot, but the other three things I would say, one is, I think donors more and more don't want like bureaucratic relationships with, with fundraisers, which means that you only engage with them when there is a report coming up. You only engage with them because you want your money in your account. Like we really want relationships where, where fundraisers come to us and keep us updated about what they are doing, that they come up with, with questions, you know, like I, the best relationships I, I have with fundraisers is when they come up and ask me, like, what do you think about this? And they are really honest about, like, we want also to engage in this. We, you have experience also in this. So what do you think about it? And I think that's really showing a willingness to be in partnership with us. The other two things, we want more and more organizations that want to engage with other organizations. We think that organizations cannot really work on, on, on alone, that they really need to engage with others. So we want to see that. The final thing I would say is we want more and more to engage with organizations that not only know the problems, but they also know the solutions or at least can imagine radical solutions for the radical problems we are going, we are seeing around the world. So innovation on that, really passion on that, that's, I think, important. Thank you, Jimena. A lot of the, the points you raised, again, resonate a lot with us. And in fact, actually, in the in the field guide, you talked about research and that, that kind of rang a bell because this is the very first topic of our, of our field guide. So in the very first section, we talk about research and how important it is. A lot of the times fundraisers probably disregard this element of fundraising, which is it kind of lays the foundations when, when, you, when you know what's happening in the sector and what funders uh, are doing and want, you can save yourself so much time when it comes to a kind of uh, knocking on the right doors. So that's that's such an important point you made. And the second also about asking questions and talking to your, your donors or potential donors. Uh, it's so important. And we even put together a template of potential questions for an interview that fundraisers can ask their donors or their future donors to understand what it is that they like, what it is that they don't like, what, what it is that they fund and how they perceive their organization. So these are uh, extremely valid points and we agree 100% with that. Totally. Yeah, everything you said was, was was super spot on and super reflected by so many of the other guests on the show. And I also love when you said at the beginning, you know, pitch your vision and your mission, not your activities. And we see that so often where, you know, whether they're clients or just organizations, we know they'll say, oh, you know, this is so annoying. I, all my funding is restricted. It's so annoying that funders only want to fund me in this way. And then we then we look at how they're pitching and we're like, well, but you only gave them choices of activities to fund. You didn't pitch your vision and your theory of change. You pitched your programs. So actually, you can't really fault the funders for choosing which program out of the list you gave them because you didn't give them the avenue to be more flexible and to buy into your larger your larger organization. So that that's a really key one for me and as well when you said, you know, don't don't just reach out to me when you need something or when the a report is due, it has to be more organic and genuine and regular than that and one of my favorite fundraising 
phrases. I did not make this up. I don't know who did. But when, when they say, if you want advice, ask for money. But if you want money, ask for advice. And I think that's totally. exactly. It's just, it's so, so, so true. That is fantastic. Thank you. And so one quick follow-up question on fundraising advice. So a key question that we get asked often by organizations who are kind of small to medium-sized is about funding applications. So of course, there's a big relationship building element that is fundamental and essential to success. As we all know, those are the, you know, those moments in between the reporting milestones, etc. But when it comes to writing big applications, which is kind of at least at this point in philanthropy, an inevitable part of most processes with funders, fundraisers who have limited in-house capacity or skills oftentimes will feel the need to hire an external grant writer in order to write the big application because they just don't have the capacity to do it. But sometimes we've even seen that the amount they have to pay that grant writer is sometimes almost equal to the amount that they would receive from the grant. And so there's this decision they have to make about, is it worth the margin of, of what we might receive after paying this person 5K you know, to, to work on this application? I'm wondering about, from your advice as a program officer, do you think that's worth it? And what would you recommend to a grantee who is struggling to write those big applications and considering bringing in someone external to do it? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I would say is if you can invest in someone that inside your organization can really do that work, because there is it will never be the same to hire someone. It's not only in in terms of how much you need to invest or pay them, but it's also in the sense that that's really that's really an institutional capacity that will bring you a lot of of payoffs in the long term. When I joined the, the organization I was directing before coming to Ford, at the beginning, we were eight people. At the end, when I left, we were 35. And one of the first decisions I made is like, I need to hire an institutional development coordinator. And we were only like six people. So some people were like, what are you talking about? We need to, we need to have more program people. And I'm like, yes, but the only way to really pitch to funders is to have someone engaging like all the time with them. So I, I think the best thing is, is to do that. If you cannot do that, like the other thing I would recommend is to enhance the capacities of your program staff to write proposals because, you know, there is also a way where you can coordinate and, and each people from the staff can write a piece of it and then someone, maybe the director of the organization is very small, can just like like fix it up and then maybe you can you can hire someone to really fix it and, and shine it up but not someone to write it from the beginning because the other thing is like it takes a lot of time for someone external to really understand what you want to say and sometimes it's just something that it's very off to what you really want to propose in in the proposals so i would say that the other thing is if you have a very good strategic planning like you can do a better proposals because you don't you do proposals just to try to fit into what donors are trying to invest on, but you're really trying to follow up what you what you strategically want to pursue. And I think for, for me as a fundraiser, when I was, it made a whole difference when I had a very good strategic plan. And I really, I really understand what I wanted to pitch to donors in the sense of our strategic planning, not what they only want, understanding what they want, but also understanding what what they what we can bring really to the table in terms of our own priorities. So a strategic planning can also bring you a long way to, to writing proposals. Yeah. So that's the best I would recommend. And if you if you need to hire someone, that's fine. But I don't recommend hiring someone all the time. Like maybe yeah. you do it the first time and then you invest really in having someone inside or in having capacities inside to do that. Yeah, that's such great advice. I completely agree. Nice one. Next and probably last question for you. So obviously, given your very unique position working for a U.S.-based organization and actually doing your day-to-day in Latin America, we we thought this would be a very, very valuable question for, for listeners, especially listeners in Latin America. But so in general, we all know that nonprofit sector is so US and UK centric in so many ways. And it can be very difficult for fundraisers outside of those regions to access the information and opportunities that are relevant and applicable to their geography. And we see that also with the guide, obviously there's been so so many organizations have been asking if we can translate that to Spanish. So it kind of goes to, to, to show how much these kind of resources in other languages as well are needed. But how would you describe the funding landscape in Latin America? The funding landscape is shrinking, 
which is it's a bad news in the sense that in the last 15 years there have been some foundations that have retired their private foundations who have retired their support to Latin America in part because we are most of, of Latin American countries are middle income countries so they say like you you have grown in terms of your economy so you you can handle it yourself and what I'm saying is like that what had what that has caused I think it's a very precarious environment where many organizations are struggling to survive. There is an incipient uh, national philanthropy, but I think that philanthropy is not really focused on social justice and human rights. It's more focused on like direct support to marginalized populations, for example. So I think there is a part where we need to work more on, on, on building that national philanthropy. And we have had that conversations inside for on how Ford can be an activator of that enhancing that environment at the national level. But I do think that there is a lot of need to continue investing in Latin America, not only because we can see some setbacks in, if we don't invest properly in that region, but also because I think Latin America is, is also very vibrant in, in innovating in the ways of organizing, of mobilizing, of really making changes. So I think we need, we have a lot to also show and, and give to the other regions and to the rest of the world and even to the US, like my US colleagues at Ford now say like, we, we have so much to learn from you guys in terms of organizing, mobilizing. And I think there is a lot of cross-sharing and pollinization that we need to do. That's great to hear. And actually, this might be a diffi difficult question, but you mentioned there's not, not so much funding available for organizations working in the social justice and human rights. But do you have any advice for fundraisers who work in that very same sector in Latin America? What could they do to, to access more resources? I mean, I think one, I mean, I would say if you if you really create very close relationship with your donors, with the donors you have, they will open you doors with other donors. So that's a way of 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 really showing showing your work, and, and that only happens if if the donor really understands your work and can really advocate for it, not only inside your foundation but outside. And I think that's a very important advice. The other advice I would give is the sector of, of fundraisers need to work better on showcasing their work and they need to work better on showing why should a, a private foundation or a foundation should really invest in that region and not, and, you know, like what are the advantages of investing in that region? And I think one of the things we've learned very much is we need to show how the South, particularly in the case of Latin America, has has a lot to 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 really bring to the to even northern initiatives. If you can go to visit the foundations in their countries, that's very expensive, I know, but it really pays off. Like if you if you're from Latin America, but most of your your funding comes from the US or the UK, go and visit. It's a very good way of of putting a face, like especially for foundations that don't have offices in the region. Like Ford, we we have the privilege of having offices in the regions, but not that doesn't happen all the time. So like making face-to-face -face contact is very important. Being persistent is very important. And not assume that donors understand your context. I think a lot of times we 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 think and assume that the donors from 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 the US or the UK will understand the context in Latin America, and they often don't. So we need to really make sure that they can understand the context in a better way. And that's up to the fundraisers, I think. Those are some really, really great points. And it's good to hear that the, the word relationships came up uh, quite a few times. It's It definitely applies everywhere in the world. I think it's a, it's a global rule that developing strong relationships with your funders and donors is extremely important. And we've, we've heard this from so many people, and especially now during the, the, the global pandemic, a lot of organizations have been able to survive thanks to the existing relationships that they already have and, you know, being able to rely on donors who know you very well and are willing to support you even more during these difficult times. Mm -hmm. This hasn't been, has never been more true, actually. Yeah, completely. Wow. Jimena, Thank you so much. There is so much incredible advice in this episode for fundraisers of all kinds, and, and we so appreciate it. My very last question for you is, for listeners who are, who are fundraisers in, in whatever organization they come from, if you wanted them to walk away remembering one key thing from this conversation, what would that be? 
Oh, wow, that's a, that's a very big question. I mean, I would say that really understanding that philanthropy is changing. We are mm -hmm. trying to build better, candid, honest, and more horizontal relationship with fundraisers, and that we want them to see us that way, and that we really want to collaborate. We're part of the same fight. We want to advance the same causes, and we're together on this. So we need to learn from each other and build stronger relationships. That's probably the best advice. Wonderful. That is a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much for your time, for your honesty, for your work. Oh my goodness. I mean, the, there's we're definitely fans of Ford. I don't know if you got that already. And <laughs> I'm what we're we friends said, of you. <laughs> it's, it's mutual. <laughs> it, it definitely, definitely. It's just so cool to be connected with such power shifting feminist people within philanthropy. It's so important. And we really, really appreciate your work and your time. No, thanks. It's been a fantastic conversation and I learned a lot. So thank you. And thanks for, thanks for that guide. It's a really very useful resource. We're glad you liked it. Thank you so much. That's all we've got for today. Of course, a huge thank you to Jimena for her generous time and advice and for being so open to dive into these topics with us. Also, we want to send a big thank you to Monica and the Ford Foundation team for their partnership on the guide over this past year. We're so excited to release it into the world. This is actually the last episode of season three, and we hope you enjoyed it. We will, of course, be releasing our usual season recap episode shortly, so stay tuned for that. And we are also in the process of planning season four, so fret not, we will return to your headphones soon. In the meantime, you know where to find us. We're on Twitter. Our handle is at IG underscore advisors. Our website is impactandgrowth.com. And to download IG's field guide to relationship-based fundraising, just go to fundraisingfieldguide.org and you'll find all the relevant links in there. As we mentioned, this guide is completely free and we would love to hear what you think. A few final thank yous from us before we sign off today. So firstly, to you, Yasmin, for your leadership on the field guide. Seriously, it, it would not have happened without her. You have no idea what, how much work she's put in behind the scenes, and it's just incredible. So thank you to you, Yasmin. And secondly, to our amazing podcast editors at Scrubcast, I really want to give them a shout out in the season because they make producing this so slick and so smooth, and they are awesome. Really recommend them if you have a podcast yourself. Thirdly, to our official season three sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, and to our media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget, you can use the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, for 25% off an Alliance subscription. And I have to say, it's so important for podcasts to have great partners behind them that make the production possible and who also support the power shifting conversations that we want to have on the show. So we're really honored to be in partnership with both Siegel and Alliance and excited for all the future possibilities too. And finally, the last thank you is to you, our listeners, for tuning in. We really couldn't do this without you. And it's such a delight to bring this show to your headphones. All right. That's it from us for today. Again, we'll be back soon with the recap. And in the meantime, we wish you all the best. See you soon.